Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, the show that brings you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm Tess. And I'm John. And it's at the end of the month. You know what that means? Da bomb! That's right, but this is a super special episode of Da bomb. That is the best of microbiology. Right, because today we are not highlighting just the best micro news of the month, but the whole year of 2020. And boy, has it been a year. It has. A lot of microbiology news came up. John, what did you find as the best microbiology news in extremophiles and space microbes? My pick for this year would be looking for life on Venus. Oh yeah, I remember that article. It was back in what, July? No, August. August. Seems so long ago. It is. This year is a weird time warp where it's both really fast and extremely slow. Yeah, I feel like it should be September and March at the same time right now. True. So we're talking about a a time warp in space? Yes. All right. So the paper we're first going to focus on is the Venusian Lower Atmosphere Haze as a Depot for the Desiccated Microbial Life, a proposed life cycle for the persistence of Venusian aerial biosphere. Do you think it's pronounced Venusian? Maybe. I like the sound of either Venusian or Venusian. It is quite exotic. And as we said, it was published in August of 2020. And the basic Overview is Venus has very extreme conditions, such as sulfuric acid and temperatures as high as 368 degrees Fahrenheit or 187 Celsius. Wow, that does not sound pleasant. No. That is way more than a spa day or a sauna. (laughs) And so this was, let me backtrack and say this is published by Sarah Seeger. And she and her team theorized that life could live on Venus, uh, Venus's lower cloud layers, which has habitable conditions for life, such as extremophiles, with temperatures around uh, 60 degrees Celsius or 140 degrees Fahrenheit. And this hypothetical life cycle kind of goes like this. So the microbes live in little droplets of sulfuric acid. Droplets like, like water droplets? Or gas, I guess gaseous, No, right? it, it would be liquid. Oh, so, it is liquid. You know how, like, if you go out into fog and it feels wet? Yes. It starts out as that. Oh, okay. So these are uh, little droplets with trace amounts of water, and over time they get bigger and bigger until eventually they rain down towards the uh, planet's surface. And then they enter Venus's lower haze layer, which is much harder. And the sulfuric acid evaporates, and to protect the microbes from dying, they theorized they would enter a protective state to survive uh, the conditions. Many bacteria and other microbes have the ability to form spores to protect them from unfavorable environments until things change on Earth, so it's entirely possible this could happen. And then updrafts from the planet's surface would blow the spores right back up to the lower cloud layers where the microbes would go back into an active state. And we have microbes that they base this on that have a similar life cycle called the cloud biome. So do they they never reach the ground or the surface of the planet? They don't. That's what it differs from the Earth. Huh. That's when it gets to temperatures of like over 300 degrees is this uh, planet's surface. Oh, that's hot. Yeah. Mm. 
So Earth has a cloud biome and microbes get swept from the Earth and float around in the air only to come down again in rain droplets when it rains again. You know what I love? What? That everything has a biome. Yeah. <laughs> There's a great. biome for everything. Everything is its own unique ecosystem and we're all special in our own unique microbial way. It's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> it really is. So let me back up a little bit before we move forward with this news. So there's another paper that uh, Sylvia was a second author on called Phosphine as a Biosignature Gas in Exoplanet Atmospheres. And this was published in January. And these exoplanets studies include looking for biosignatures, uh, gases, which are gases that are made from life. And they look to see if phosphine could be a biological marker. So most phosphine on Earth comes from a biological source and it is associated with anaerobic life due to its presence in like anaerobic ecosystems but the exact mechanisms of how it's produced are still debated today. So biological source as in microbes. Exactly. Mostly archaea or bacteria. I want to say a little both. Yeah that would make sense. Now they said that they simulated at the atmospheres of habitable terrestrial planets with CO2 and H2 dominated atmospheres. What they simulated, I assume they just did computer models. I looked through the paper and I couldn't quite tell. And it had a lot of chemistry and I took organic chemistry, did terrible at it, but just passed. So that's my assumption. <laughs> uh, so. They found that in these simulations, phosphine could reach detectable levels provided that there's a high production rate. And I think this was a good predictive modeling. And phosphine also has unique features that allow it to be distinguished from other molecules. And they believe that phosphine is a possible marker as there's currently no known sources of phosphine production outside of life that can generate the levels needed to be detected when it comes to terrestrial or habitable planets. Hmm. And so we're going to go back to the present. Well, not as present, but more present. <laughs> <laughs> this brings us to September, where Sarah Seeger was also an author. She was fourth author on a paper called Phosphine Gas in the Clouds of Venus. Wait, all these three papers came out in 2020? They all came out in 2020. Wow, she had a productive year, huh? Yeah. Amazing. I would say so. I get one paper out like every four years. So they reported the presence of phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Venus, detect, which was detected using wavelengths. Venus's atmosphere should be quickly oxidizing phosphine due to the chemicals in it, which means it's being replenished. And this could be due to an unknown chemical process or what they theorize by life. But every chemical process is by life. Uh, no. Most chemical processes are by life. Mostly microbes. The best chemists ever. I would say... Ever. Well, yes. Yes. But Come this... at me, chemists. Don't at me. <laughs> You're valuable. But this has caused drama out of these findings. In November, the authors have informed the editors of Nature Astronomy where this paper had come out about an error in the original processing of the LMA observatory data, which where they took the data, underlying the work of this article. 
and that recalibration of the data has been, had an impact on the conclusions that can be drawn. That was a direct quote from the authors to the editor. And there was a paper that was published in October, this is in response to a paper that was published in October saying that there was no phosphine in gas at, in Venus's atmosphere. Ooh, shots fired! Yeah, so this, this, this gets a little salty. A little drama, a little yeah. science drama. So they tell me about it. Oh, I will. They suggest this is a direct quote. They suggest the finding should be considered invalid due to severe baseline calibration issues. Hmm. And they demonstrated by independent calibration analyzing the data using different tools. They even stated they invite the team to revise their work and consider a correction or retraction from their original report. Wow. So is there phosphine gas in Venus? Not so sure anymore. And so this has left uh, the scientific community a little bit divided right now. Oh, I bet. I remember in July how excited, or August, how excited everybody was about this, this thought that there might be life on Venus. It was all over social media, and there are so many news articles about it. Yeah, and I was watching videos on YouTube about it, so... I'm I'm looking at a close eye to any future updates on this one. Yeah, it should be interesting to to follow up with this. Although you do, we do have to kind of say that if you're trying to measure anything on Venus, it's got to be quite challenging. Yeah. So allow a margin of error. I think is acceptable. I think so. And with microbes, which you can't see on Earth, and you're trying to see them on a different planet. <laughs> By proxy, they're trying to say like, oh, all this phosphine, therefore there has to be something there creating it. Yeah. So what article did you look at? All right. So mine will come to no surprise to anybody that the greatest discovery or breakthrough in science in 2020, I think most people will agree, is the COVID-19 vaccines. Notice vaccines, not one, but two FDA-approved vaccines are currently on the market in the United States. So every year, the editors and writers at Science Magazine come together and choose what is the biggest breakthrough in science, and they agree, kind of unanimously, that it was the COVID-19 vaccines. And what is so interesting about this vaccine is that, well, there's lots of things interesting about it, but it's one of the fastest vaccines to ever come to market. Only 11 months after they sequenced SARS-CoV-2 did they come up with a vaccine. Two vaccines, actually. Yeah, I'm not 100% on this, but I think the second closest was, what, mumps? And that was like a couple years it took to even make that vaccine. Yeah, typically it takes about 10 years for a vaccine to be produced to this degree. It's crazy to think about, right? Yeah, it's truly a phenomenal achievement that took an immense amount of manpower and collaborations that helped cut through all the red tape. So one of the things that I've read about is, and this should come no surprise to anyone, that there's a lot of red tape in science, particularly when you're doing anything with public health and safety. There's a lot of different people you have to get approval from. And one of the reasons why COVID was able, or the COVID vaccines were able to go so quickly is they were able to do things in parallel. And they were able to kind of streamline this process of getting all these committees and all these approvals from, from different agencies. But I wanna take a second to just talk about the coronavirus and its replications in biology. So the coronavirus, or COVID-19, stems from a family of viruses known as coronavirus. 
They are enveloped, single-stranded RNA viruses, and they're not new to the world. We've seen coronaviruses as far back as 1931, where the first coronavirus was described. This was an avian virus. It would be 30 years before coronaviruses were researched and kind of discovered uh, in humans. And mo a lot of coronaviruses are actually what we attribute to the common cold. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not know that. In this family. And in the past 20 years, we've seen a number of outbreaks that have had severe impact on our society. Most people will remember the SARS outbreak of 2002 and 2003, as well as the MERS outbreak of 2012. So these are also coronaviruses. So although the coronavirus of today, SARS-CoV-2, is novel and it's new, the family and the research into coronaviruses have we have long been researching, which is another attribute of why we we're able to streamline and come up with a vaccine so quickly. So the virus is made up of three main components, the envelope, the membrane, and the spike or surface protein. The spike and surface protein is probably the one that most people will recognize because this is the one that is in the vaccines. This is the protein that attaches to our own cells causing an infection. So I know that we all lived through the coronavirus, but I just want to take a, a second to look back at what the pandemic has been in kind of a 30 second timeline of the last year of our lives. So in December of 2019, if people can remember that far back, Wuhan, China reported the first outbreak. It was in January 2020 that the outbreak was linked to the novel coronavirus and the genome was sequenced. And the name SARS-CoV-2 was given to the virus. The hunt for a vaccine began at this time, most looking at the surface protein or the spike protein. In January, the first COVID-19 case was reported in the U.S., by February, I remember being confused. There was a lot of misinformation, a lot of denial, but we were all mainly do, still doing normal things. Yeah, I'm, I was still going to work every day at that point. Yeah, I had an in-person defense to get my PhD. And then by March, everything shut down. Most countries were in lockdown. In April, we heard about the first potential vaccine from Sinovac it was effective against monkeys, and five other vaccines came to clinical trials. And so began Donald Trump's Operation Warp Speed. I have to give him credit. I kind of like that name. It has a very sci-fi theme to it, I gotta say. Yeah, it does pull to my heart a little bit. Yeah. So as May and June approached in the summers, I think there was a, some restrictions began to relax. But there was no end in sight for sure. By July, many countries like China and New Zealand had effectively stopped the spread of the disease, while countries like the U.S. did not stop it at all. And then we were starting to hear about Moderna and Pfizer's vaccine candidates entering large-scale clinical trials. And then in November, within days, Moderna and Pfizer's vaccine reported a nearly 95% efficacy, which is crazy. Do you know the efficacy of the flu vaccine? It's not that high, is it? No. It changes from year to year because it's based on the strains that they think are going to impact the world the most in that given year. But the flu vaccine efficacy is somewhere between 40 and 60%. Yeah. That's not that high. So the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines reporting a 95% efficacy is phenomenal. 
And then in December, of course, which is the month we are recording this, the first vaccines were administered in the U.S. Now, I looked at John Hopkins right before recording this podcast. And so this is the most up-to-date data as of recording. There are nearly 77 million global cases of COVID-19 with 1,699,085 people having died from the disease. And finally, we also have a a really great recovery of the disease as well with 43 million people, over 43 million people having reported to recovered from the disease. Do you know the main kinds of vaccines that are out there? Well, I know most vaccines are either weakened or attenuated, like uh, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine and chickenpox. I also know that there are other vaccines that are inactivated or they are heat-killed vaccines like whooping cough and pertussis or polio. Yeah. Um, And what is different about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines is they are actually built on messenger RNA. So mRNA vaccines are, are kind of new to the world, but researchers have been studying them for decades for diseases like flu, Zika, and rabies. They are advantageous because they are easily scaled up and they can be developed faster than traditional methods. An mRNA vaccine is built off of the mRNA, which is messenger RNA. This is like a messenger delivers instructions to your body. These instructions tell your body how to make the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. Because the protein is foreign to your body, your body will send out its detectives to measure the threat. They will say, yep, that's a threat. We need to not only destroy that, but we need to monitor that in the body for any new viruses of this kind. And sort of like storing fingerprints in a criminal database. These are your antibodies. So the next time the virus pops up, the body can identify it based on its protein that is cataloged in its database, send out the antibodies, and arrest and annihilate the virus. I think it's pretty cool that it's a vaccine that makes your body make the viral proteins. Right. Yeah, this is a it's a pretty novel thing and it has I think a lot of potential in the future for a number of different diseases that we currently don't have vaccines for. So what is the difference between Moderna and Pfizer's vaccines? There's actually not a lot of difference. So both vaccines, like I said, are made out of mRNA. They're both Moderna's and Pfizer's have been approved by the FDA, and both vaccines have started to be distributed in the U.S. Both vaccines require two doses that are several weeks apart. Kind of the biggest difference, I think, to know as a consumer, or maybe this is not even a difference that you need to know as a consumer, is that the the storage is different. So Moderna's vaccine can be stored in a regular freezer, which is typically at minus 20 Celsius, while the Pfizer vaccine is stored at minus 70, which is colder than Antarctica. So it's pretty cold. That makes it a little bit more difficult to transport, right? Yeah, minus 70 freezers are pretty commonplace in 
universities and academia, but definitely are not found in rural parts of the world where research is not going on, making it really hard to kind of get these vaccines, this Pfizer vaccine, to those locations that don't have this equipment. Minus 70 or minus 80 freezers are, what, $20,000? At least, and that's not even the eco-friendly ones, which even run higher. Right. If you don't already have these freezers in your area, it's not great to to go out and buy one for sure, which is actually kind of good because now we have two vaccines. We have one vaccine, Moderna. We can focus those vaccines towards more rural communities that don't have access to these ultra low temperature freezers. And then this Pfizer vaccine can be sent to those facilities that have these freezers. So there's been a lot of debate on who gets the vaccine when. And this has been officially decided yesterday. Wow, that's like brands bacon new news. Right. So on December 20th, the CDC's advisory committee on immunization practices voted on who should get the first 100 million doses of the vaccine between now and February 2021. This would be phase one of the vaccine administration. So phase 1A has already started. These are the healthcare workers and the long-term care facilities. It's about 24 million people in the U.S. And those people have had their lives on the line since the beginning of this pandemic. Um, And they're very high risk of being in contact and being infected with the disease. Yeah, I can't argue with that. They, like you said, they've been in the most contact with the most infected people. Yeah, we definitely want our healthcare workers to stay as safe as possible. Phase 1B, which will start as early as January 2021, will include adults 75 years and older, as well as essential workers like teachers, firefighters, grocery store workers, and prisoner officers. This is again, it is about 49 million people. Again, these are people that are in very high risk of getting the disease and having severe complications from it. Phase 1C would be adults 65 years and older and people at higher risk due to underlying medical conditions. So when I was reading the CDC Advisories Committee PowerPoint that they had out to the public, they were really trying to look at who is going to be the best people to administer this vaccine to, both as a science perspective and as an ethical perspective, and trying to balance how do we maintain and get society back to normal versus who is at highest risk to have complications or who are at higher risk of having COVID-19 result in death. Yeah, I'm looking at these numbers and... It's just about 2021. I'm surprised that we're able to get these many doses so quickly. Yeah, it's definitely been something that's been on everyone's mind for the past six months since we've been hearing about the vaccine. It's like, okay, well, once we get the vaccine, how are we going to distribute it to everybody in the world? I mean, that's a huge idea, huge undertaking for sure. And so phase 1A, B, and C, it's not like there's a strict end date and a strict start date, it's kind of a rolling. They want to, you know, obviously continuously be administrating the vaccines as they come available. Uh, And then there's the second phase, which will happen in spring 2021, will be everybody else. Now, I imagine that's going to take several months for everybody else 
to get the vaccine. It's not like they're going to be like, April 20th, come get your COVID vaccine. And everyone lines up like we do. Well, I mean, I guess we sort of do that for voting, huh? Yeah. I can tell you there's a lot of nurses that are going to be taking overtime for this endeavor. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll see. If all goes to plan, we should all be vaccinated by maybe midsummer and all have immunity by fall. And hopefully there's not a mutation that... Fingers crossed. <laughs> yep. Well, we'll definitely see. And then I, I finally just want to close with this idea that the public distrust around the COVID-19 vaccine has only been growing in the past six months. There's been a lot of misinformation, a lot of distrust, and this is really going to be a huge barrier to the vaccine, is we need this buy-in from the public. We need people to trust in science, to trust that it's safe, and trust in the FDA is not, is giving us the appropriate vaccine. All signs point to that this is an effective vaccine, it is a safe vaccine, and neither Moderna or Pfizer has any better efficacy, so whatever one is available in your area, it's worth taking. Right. But still, there's a lot of mistrust, um, and I've seen that a lot of social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Google have started to put in place new policies to try to scrape their platforms of this misinformation about COVID-19. Google has actually given $250 million in ad grants to help governments give PSAs on the vaccines. Um, I've also seen Dr. Fauci has done a lot in order to try to curb misinformation and to spread hope about the COVID-19 vaccine. He was recently on Sesame Street's town hall where he told all the kids that Santa Claus is vaccinated and good to go for Christmas, which... Oh, that's adorable. So cute. Oh, I'm going to cry. I'm not going to cry. I'm going to cry. Gonna... Okay, you go because I'm going to need to cry. All right. Okay, talk about biotech. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, like uh, Tess was saying, I, I'm going to cover biotech. We didn't actually cover this one this year, which was surprising, but it's a really interesting story. So this is about the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2020. This was in October 7th, and the recipients were Emmanuel... I apologize if I mispronounce her last name. Charpentier, I, from Max Planck Unit of the Science of Pathogens in Berlin, Germany, and Jennifer A. Dudna from the University of California, Berkeley. And from now on, I'm just going to say Emmanuel or Jennifer when I refer to them, only because I have a terrible time pronouncing words. <laughs> it is a challenge. And so... This Nobel Prize is for the development of a method for genomic editing. And so this is specifically for the CRISPR-Cas9, which I'm sure many people have heard. And they're genetic scissors that can modify DNA in, of many plants, animals, and microbes. And this will be the only technical thing I'll say, but CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Yeah, I definitely didn't know that. No, but I like the fact that it has palindromic. That sounds nice. Yeah, that is nice. Everyone just calls it CRISPR. Yeah. It's that, like DNA. <laughs> like Deoxyribonucleic acid. Right. DNA. DNA. So what is CRISPR? So it is found in bacteria, and it's bacteria's natural immune system to fight against viruses or bacteriophages. So in a nutshell, when a viral... It, the bacteria will take 
a snippet of viral DNA and integrate it into a specific area of its own DNA, which it uses as like a memory for the bacteria. It's like B cell and memory T cell in a human body. And so if the bacteria is infected with that virus again, the memory is used by the bacteria to cut the viral DNA so it can no longer replicate. Yeah, and so this tool has actually been around for a number of years, hasn't it? Over a decade. It's been known over a decade. It's still within a decade of being used, I think. But uh, it's, like I said, it's been known for a little while. Uh, an example is in 2009, it was demonstrated that Streptococcus thermophilus acquired resistance against a virus by integrating a genome fragment of the virus into their DNA. And Emmanuel was studying Streptococcus pyogenes and found what was called tracer RNA, which is an integral part of the CRISPR system. Pretty much what Chris, uh, tracer RNA is, it's used to mature part of the system. You know, like maturing a cheese. Interesting analogy. Well, the fact that the previous study was actually done on yogurt. So, you know what? Dairy products. <laughs> <laughs> so then, Emmanuel uh, entered a collaboration with Jennifer, and they were able to simplify the molecular components of the CRISPR system and recreate it in a test tube. And this was in 2012, and they demonstrated that they could program the system to cut DNA as at a predetermined site and so this uh, system now can be used to swap out mutations in DNA for the correct DNA sequence like repairing it inserting or deleting a fragment of DNA to make a non-functional gene or gene that can no longer work and it has developed crops to be resistant to mold new cancer therapies are also being developed using CRISPR for humans so some of the things that have used CRISPR are tomatoes were approved by the health ministry of Japan that produces five times more GABA than normal. And this is a chemical that's thought to lower blood pressure and reduce stress. And so this is this year in 2020? Uh, yes. Apples have been produced that don't brown when sliced. Oh, that would be so nice. Yeah. Crops that can, cor that can tolerate drought. That's useful. Or pests. Definitely useful. There are increasing crop yields, and many other uh, studies have achieved proof of concept. However, there's been a battle for the patent of CRISPR. It is who owns the technique or method for this type of genomic editing, specifically gene editing in human cells. So Jennifer published a paper in 2013 after her collaborative work with Emmanuel demonstrating that the CRISPR system can make changes in animal DNA. However, a researcher, Fen Zhang, from the Broad Institute, published a similar findings a month prior, specifically lo looking at human cells. So now, UCLA Berkeley and the University of Vienna are on one side of this, this patent debate, and the Broad Institute is on the other, with one filing first, while the other paying for a fast track review re respectively. And the main argument is, if it was clear that the method devised by Jennifer and Manuel was able to be implemented in human cells. And this goes even further. So the president of the Broad Institute even published in uh, the journal Cell in 2016 with the title, The Heroes of CRISPR. And it focused on the men behind CRISPR and really downplays Jennifer and Manuel. 
And there are several scientists that were mentioned in the article that came out and said that this story was inaccurate. So this really shows that, like, even if it comes to find out that Jennifer and Emmanuel did not devise the patent for human cells, they should still be one of the cornerstones in that paper. I mean, they were the first ones to implement CRISPR, so they should have a huge recognition in this paper. And in addition, there are scientists out there who feel that there were people left out getting the Nobel Prize, such as those identified that had identified CRISPR targets in DNA. I feel like there are always people that are left out in the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Just like Esther Lederberg. So this lawsuit that's happening, or this battle that's happening, I doubt that the scientists themselves are involved with it. The thing is, the institutions where they devise these, they have any patent rights. So I think it's the universities and the institutes themselves, not the scientists. I just want to clarify that. And so those were three big articles that we thought were the biggest ones in 2020. Did we forget anything? Let us know and write us in at microbegales at gmail.com. Well, Microbegale Nation, that's the end of the show. We'd like to thank you so, so much for listening. We hope you now have some fun facts to present at your next Zoom meeting or Christmas virtual party. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and share with a friend. And don't forget, you can find us at microbegales.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B. I-G-A-L-S dot com. We hope, hope you, you enjoyed, enjoyed listening, listening and, and we, we hope, hope you and your microbes stay healthy and happy during the holiday season. season. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye.